The following was recorded at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, May 1st. I'm Marco Werman. President Obama flies to Afghanistan to sign a new agreement with officials there. The deal calls for a close relationship between the U.S. and Afghanistan beyond 2014. We'll hear the details. Also, an African warlord nicknamed Terminator takes over two towns in eastern Congo. And later, a new fabric is a fashion hit in Pakistan. You can look bright in this summer season and、uh, feel good, comfortable, not that sweaty, you know, because even fitted jeans, you can feel really, really hot. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, presenting Frontline's Money, Power, and Wall Street. Four years after the financial crisis exploded, are we safer? The investigation goes on in Washington, U.S. banks, and the looming troubles in Europe. Tonight at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. President Obama arrived in Afghanistan today for an unannounced visit. Air Force One landed under cover of darkness at Bagram Air Base, north of Kabul. Obama met with Afghan President Hamid Karzai to sign a new agreement cementing the relationship between the U.S. and Afghanistan beyond 2014. That's when the American led NATO combat mission in the country is slated to end. Caroline Wadhams is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress in Washington. She's familiar with the deal just signed in Kabul. The agreement is outlining the long term relationship between the United States and Afghanistan over the long term, between now and 2014 and beyond. And it's supposed to set out a set of mutual commitments about what the U.S. will provide to the Afghan government in terms of security assistance and force levels, and what the Afghan government will then provide in return in terms of access、uh, to, to potential、uh, basing、um, and,、uh, and other commitments. And what details do you have、uh, on that assistance?、Uh, what does it commit the United States to do after the withdrawal of combat forces in 2014? We haven't seen text of this agreement yet. And from what we've heard, a lot of the most contentious issues continue to be kicked down the, kicked down the road. It appears that there still is no specificity on the number of U.S. forces that will remain beyond 2014. And there is also no、uh, specific funding levels. On how much money will be provided to the Afghan government, either on the military or the non military side. We know that this commitment, there is, the commitment is being made, which in Of its, in and of itself is a symbolic gesture to reassure the, the Afghan government and the Afghan people that we will be there for the long term, but we really don't have much in terms of specifics. Supposedly, we also、uh, we understand that the Afghan government is supposed to be committing to certain political reforms that it has promised to make related to anti corruption efforts, the improvement of government. Again, we don't have specificity on what that looks like and what the sort of conditions are of that.、Uh, of 
those commitments made by the Afghan government. Supposedly, there is a, a bilateral commission which will be established within this strategic partnership agreement that will basically have Afghan and U.S. officials monitoring progress uh, by the Afghan government and by the U.S. In, and, and determining whether the agreement should continue and whether commitments are being followed through and therefore whether uh, the, the reciprocity is, is, is happening as needed. Right. Now, in a televised address tonight from Afghanistan for the American public, President Obama will declare Afghanistan a major non-NATO ally. Can you explain briefly what that means? Sure. Um, it's a designate, designation given by the U.S. to close allies who are not NATO partners, um, but who have strategic uh, working relationships with, with the U.S. Armed Forces. And it provides, uh, it's not a defense pact, but it does confer a variety of uh, military and financial advantages to, to that country. So we have these kinds of agreements with a number of countries, including countries like Japan, Pakistan and Australia. Finally, uh, Caroline, uh, why today? Why was this visit scheduled today? Well, they've been trying to get the strategic partnership agreement signed for many, many months, and um, there is an increased urgency to sign this because of the Chicago summit, the Chicago NATO summit, which is happening May 20th and 21st. The administration wanted a deal by the time that conference happened, and so there was, I think there was a sense that it needed to happen now. Obviously, some co- coincidence with uh, the anniversary of the uh, killing of Osama bin Laden, too, I imagine. Yes, that that that's also to probably the symbolism to draw attention to that uh, to that incident is also a part of it. Caroline Wadhams at the Center for American Progress in Washington, speaking about President Obama's surprise visit to Afghanistan today. Thank you very much. Thank you. It looks like Israel is gearing up for an election. There isn't supposed to be one until late 2013, but Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, are hinting that national elections could happen earlier, perhaps as early as this September. As the country looks set to enter campaign season, there is one new face in Israeli politics that's already a household name there. Yair Lapid is a well-known journalist who's running for office. The world's Matthew Bell reports from Tel Aviv. He's a newcomer to Israel's bare-knuckled brand of electoral politics, a fresh face, his supporters say, but Yair Lapid is anything but unknown. He's the son of a renowned Israeli journalist-turned-politician, the late Tommy Lapid. The younger Lapid is also a successful writer. Israelis know him best, though, as a prominent TV news anchorman. This segment aired last December, just before Lapid announced he would leave Israel's Channel 2 and run for parliament. The story was about ultra-Orthodox extremists intimidating a seven-year-old Israeli girl. Why? Because they didn't find her conservative religious style of dress sufficiently modest. In the video clip, Lapid's tone and his hand gestures make it clear he has nothing but contempt for the alleged perpetrators. In some ways, Yair Lapid, the aspiring politician, can be compared to Barack Obama before he was elected. Lapid is a sharp dresser, smooth talker, and relatively young at 48. His campaign is internet savvy, and he seems to have the young left-of-center crowd excited. Lapid chose Tel Aviv University for the official launch of his campaign today. 
26-year-old politics student Karen Rosenstein says she drove more than two hours to be here and very likely to volunteer for Lapid. I support Gary Lapid because there's something different about his way that's different from most of the politicians today. There's something very honest about him, very refreshing, and I think that this is what this country needs the most, something new. Uh, someone knew that we lead this country to a better way. Lapid's message fired up the mostly young and secular crowd. The candidate stood in front of a row of blue and white Israeli flags and talked a lot about the middle class, the importance of serving in the army, and the ultra-Orthodox. I'm not against the Haredim, Lapid said, referring to the most conservative Israeli Jews. They make up about 10% of the population. Many ultra-Orthodox men do not serve in the army, and they receive government subsidies so they can spend years studying religion full-time. Lapid said he doesn't want to go to war with the ultra-Orthodox, but the government cannot underwrite them forever. Lapid got a big hand for saying he would take government subsidies away from religious yeshiva students and give them to young veterans entering university. There are things Lapid's not talking about, though. These include a Palestinian state or the Arab Spring. He is clearly trying to ride the wave of middle-class discontent that fueled large demonstrations for social justice last summer all across Israel. He says his newly formed party, Yesh Atid, meaning there is a future in Hebrew, will protect the middle class, but Israeli voters can be a cynical bunch. At a popular pedestrian mall in Jerusalem yesterday, I asked a range of people what they think of Yair Lapid. A few said they would vote for him, but many were skeptical, including this young voter. Some, some people today, they, they say they, they like Lapid, he's new, he's He's new, clean. he's young, he's kind of, but I don't know. You're not impressed? Not, not, not so much. Maybe after like a few years in politics. Others told me they didn't take Lapid's message on the middle class at face value, in part because he's someone who doesn't come from the middle class himself. He's starring in his own movie, one man told me. But the polls say Israelis are watching. Lapid is projected to win at least 12 seats in parliament. If he joined with other left-leaning parties, they could potentially pose a serious challenge to the right-wing coalition that controls the government now. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell. You might remember Ukrainian politician Yulia Tymoshenko. She was a public face of the 2004 Orange Revolution. Later, she became prime minister. But then her fortunes took a serious nosedive. Last October, she was sentenced to seven years in prison for abuse of office. Many in the West questioned the charges. Now Tymoshenko's on a hunger strike to protest her treatment in prison. And this week, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton called for her release. Reporter Bridget McCarthy has followed Tymoshenko's career. And Bridget, first of all, remind us who Yulia Tymoshenko is and where she fits into Ukraine's political landscape. Well, this is a politician whom Forbes magazine just a few years ago called the third most powerful woman in the world. She was Eastern Europe's Iron Lady and the most recognizable symbol of Ukraine with her you know, strikingly beautiful face and immaculate outfits and her honey blonde braid wrapped around her head. And it's worth noting that she's a, a woman politician in a part of the world where you know women are completely invisible. I mean, think about it. Have you ever even seen Mrs. Putin or Mrs. Medvedev? Right. So she's a pretty remarkable character in her own right. 
Now, as you, you mentioned, she was one of the leaders of Ukraine's Orange Revolution in 2004 and then went on to become prime minister in the Orange government. Uh, when she ran for president in 2010, she lost in a runoff by just three and a half percent of the vote. So I guess that wasn't enough for the president, though. Then he went and put her in jail. Right. And, and so how did former prime minister Tymoshenko end up in prison? Well, the initial charges were over a deal she negotiated with Russians Vladimir Putin in 2009 to buy Russian natural gas. But many observers really think this is just political payback. Um, As one Ukrainian friend told me in an email today, Yanukovych doesn't think. He just needs to remove his arch rival by any means. He doesn't care what people think because he's not dependent on them in any way. It's basically just he's kind of flexing his muscles and eliminating her completely. It wasn't enough to eliminate her at the ballot box, apparently. So it makes uh, Timoshenko seem like a a victim in a flailing democracy. She does sound like a very complex figure. Is it possible to say whether she's a hero or a villain? It really isn't. I mean, she is one of the most complicated figures in politics. As one reporter said, Timoshenko is a compelling mixture of ruthless calculation, iron will, and sincere passion. You know, this is a woman who is... Ukraine's first and only female oligarch. She made millions in the 1990s um, in the gas trade. Then when she went into politics, she became a reformer and helped clean up that very same murky gas trade. So she's a mixture of kind of ruthless ambition and genuine reformist tendencies. So it's really hard to to say she's good or bad. And she's a very polarizing figure in Ukraine. People either love her or hate her. And she's also enormously charismatic. How does all this fit into the bigger picture in Ukraine uh, politically right now? And what does Timoshenko's imprisonment and apparent abuse say about the situation there? Well, it does seem like the Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, is determined to turn Ukraine into a pariah state. I mean, he has alienated not only the West, the EU and and the United States with his treatment of Timoshenko, but also Russia. And, you know, the Ukrainians, I know they are so demoralized by the political situation in their country. I mean, they feel imprisoned, too, by this ruthless, corrupt government because the country's in the grip of a president who has no vision for the country other than personal enrichment and unchecked power. Reporter Bridget McCarthy, thank you so much. Thank you, Marco. Still ahead on the program, trying to solve the mystery of the borderline hum on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We've been following the story of Joseph Kony, the warlord in Central Africa, who's wanted for crimes against humanity. We're also following another warlord, this one in Democratic Republic of Congo. Bosco Intaganda, like Kony, is wanted by the International Criminal Court for recruiting child soldiers. His nickname is Terminator. Ntaganda's been involved in rebel activity since at least 2002, but as part of a 2009 peace deal, he and his rebels were assimilated into the Congolese army. 
until last month. And Taganda fled with his loyalists to eastern Congo, and now they've taken over two towns there. The BBC's Thomas Hubert is in Bukavu in eastern Congo. So, Thomas, Ntaganda and his troops fought off the Congolese army, pushed them out of these two towns, and now they're in control. Tell us what you saw of the battle and the aftermath. I went to Sake on Monday, which is really the last government stronghold that is still stable outside Goma, the provincial capital of North Kivu there. And uh, Sake was really the scene of a, a double flux of people. You could see soldiers either coming down from the hills where they've been uh, beaten on Sunday by Boskuntaganda's forces, and you could see some other troops coming from Goma, coming to fight Boskuntaganda's forces. And you could also see a lot of civilians fleeing the area, thousands of people walking on the road towards Goma and for some of them towards Rwanda where they've been seeking refuge. Were you able to speak with any of the witnesses who fled these towns? Uh, Did they tell you about Bosco and Daganda? Did they see him in action? They didn't see him, but they definitely recognized his soldiers. They are members of uh, the former CNDP militia. That's a, a movement that was famous, if we can say, in 2008 under another rebel commander, Laurent Kunda, who is now under house arrest in Rwanda. And this is pretty much the same configuration with those troops formed uh, along ethnic lines, which are all members or close to the Tutsi community. And they have been keeping their relationship within the army after a peace deal in 2009 and people who were fleeing the area, they said they had seen them before in 2008, 2007 Mm. during a previous similar conflict. So where are these Congolese now who fled the fighting in these two villages in eastern Congo? I saw them along a string of makeshift sites on the road along which there are people sleeping in the open or walking all day, trying to reach the former displaced people's camps, which did exist uh, during the successive wars that plagued this region, mostly outside Goma. Those camps were pretty much emptied as stability returned to some degree to the region in the past four years, and now they're filling up again. Now, Congolese President Joseph Kabila said that he would not agree to hand over Bosco and Daganda to the ICC, the International Criminal Court. I'm wondering, is that going to change now with residents of these two towns fleeing and the embarrassment to Congolese troops? Will Kabila let Bosco and Daganda act with impunity? There was a shift in President Joseph Kabila's discourse a few days ago when he came to Goma and he said that there are a hundred reasons to arrest Boskuntaganda now, but he was specifically referring to the indiscipline within the army and uh, maybe also the various mafia networks that have been plaguing the army or the trading of minerals. So President Kabila said there are a lot of reasons to arrest Boskuntaganda and try him in Congo, and it looks like there is now a real will to go after him and to take him out of his Masisi stronghold. Now, what happens next is not very clear. Will he be arrested? Will he be killed? Will he be arrested and transferred to the ICC? Nobody knows really at this stage. The BBC's Thomas Hubert in Bukavu in eastern Congo. Thank you very much for joining us, Thomas. Thank you. The West African country of Mali is going through its own turmoil. A military coup toppled the government in March, and a rebel movement has divided the country. The unrest began when tens of thousands of Malians flooded home from Libya last year. They'd gone there for a better living, but Libya's war put an end to that. Reporter Marine Olivesi begins a two-part story on Mali's returnees. Today she focuses on the economic migrants. (laughs) 
Crowding around a small TV set, a group of kids and adults burst out when their team scores. Soccer game or not, it rarely gets quiet around here. More than 40 people live in these series of small rooms built around a cluttered courtyard. Off to one side is a massive refrigerator. Dembakone says it's the only valuable thing he managed to take out of Libya last spring. For 11 years, Demba was a butcher in the village of Gatroun in southern Libya. He says there were only four butchers in town, all of them from Mali. In early April 2011, as the Libyan conflict escalated, Demba sent his wife and four children to Tunisia. They then flew on to Mali. Demba stayed behind to organize things. Then one night, he says, seven armed men broke into his house and assaulted him. They forced him to give them the $15,000 he had hidden under his roof, his life savings. He got a lift from a pickup truck into Niger a few days later. When he finally arrived in Bamako, Demba says he had nothing left but his seven-foot-long industrial fridge. Everyone here in Mali knew I'd been in Libya for years. They all thought, he must be coming back with loads of money. So when I came back, relatives and neighbors, they all expected something from me. I had to explain that I lost everything in one night and that I've got nothing, nothing at all. One year later, Demba says he's still empty-handed. He hasn't found a job, too many butchers here already, he explains. Yet he can't even afford to buy meat for his own children. Officials say about 12,000 Malian migrant workers fled Libya last year, but the numbers are likely much higher, says Umar Sidibe. He works with the migrants' advocacy group in Bamako. Sidibe says migrants in Libya came from all over Mali. Every region, every ethnic group sent some of their own there for the promise of higher paying jobs. Aruna Traoré worked for Western families in Tripoli. For 10 years, he cleaned, cooked, babysat and tended gardens. He pulls out a certificate from one employer praising his honesty and cheerfulness. They paid him $700 a month and put him and his family up in a guest house. Aruna regularly sent money home, sometimes up to $300. That's about five times the average monthly wage in Mali. Now back in Bamako, Aruna says he lives off the very relatives he used to assist. Imagine this uh, old woman can feed me. Aruna says his grandmother is feeding his family and he can't give her any money. And then let my family stay with them. Now we stay one year. I will make me shame too much. Somebody can help you for once, two times, three. But forever, I never imagine one day I can be for this uh, situation. Like many other migrants returning from Libya, Haruna says he's angry at the government for doing nothing to help. But he's even more furious at Mali's authorities for giving a warmer welcome to a small, select group of returnees, ones that fought for the Libyan regime. For The World, I'm Marine Olivesi. Bamako, Mali. Tomorrow we hear from a Tuareg general who fought for Gaddafi. Now he's fighting for an independent state in Mali. Marine went to Mali on a fellowship from the French-American Foundation United States. You can see her photos of Malian returnees at theworld.org.
I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, Christian Louboutin designs shoes that are painful to wear, and he's proud of it. No, these are not comfortable shoes. So this is where my shoes are standing. This little extra pain with this maximum of pleasure is worth it. Well, if it's not worth it, just don't wear them. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The political turmoil in Yemen over the past year has proven to be a bonus for al-Qaeda. The terror group's local affiliate, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, has taken advantage of the chaos to win control of parts of the country. This despite U.S. drone strikes that have killed some of its leaders recently. Yesterday, in his speech defending the use of drone strikes, White House counterterrorism official John Brennan admitted that al-Qaeda remains strong in Yemen. Gaith Abdullahad is a reporter for The Guardian newspaper in London. He's just back from visiting southern Yemen, and he says al-Qaeda fighters there are no longer confined to their mountain bases, as they were during his last visit in 2010. Now in 2012, they are down into the coastal areas. They control cities. They control towns. I drove from Aden to Shabwa, a few hundred kilometers. The road had their checkpoints on the road. So they they have a bigger influence at the moment. They're down in towns. They, They run social services. They've abolished taxes. They provide electricity. So they have far more influence. So I don't know what influence the drones have in the past two years. Military speaking, they, have, they are much stronger than the Yemeni army at the moment. As long as you're talking about those checkpoints, uh, you describe in your story for The Guardian how on one journey you traveled through eight or nine jihadi checkpoints. What is that like? I mean, checkpoints are notoriously corrupt little situations. <laughs> They are corrupt little situations, but then at the same time, checkpoints are the symbol of authority in the Middle East. So by them manning checkpoints, planting their flags, manning the checkpoints with a lot of gunmen, they are trying to tell you, the jihadis, that we are a force on the ground, that we are a state, we have our own security services, and we are doing exactly what a state would do. So that's that's the strange thing of having jihadi checkpoints. You know, when I was in Iraq, when I drove through Afghanistan and Somalia, when you see the black flag, this is a sign of death for you as a journalist. Mm. You know, this is end of the game. Yet there, they use these flags to have checkpoints. They don't stop you. They don't take bribes. They let you pass. They just search for weapons in the cars. And they're trying to to give this feel that we're different from the days of Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, you spoke with jihadis in southern Yemen when you were there. Why are they fighting? What did they tell you? What do they want? Well, it's the same combination of old you know, this, the same old rhetoric that you hear in Afghanistan and Iraq and Somalia, uh, fighting for Sharia, fighting for Islamic State, fighting for justice, fighting the Americans, the invaders, and, and all the same old rhetoric. But one of the guys I was talking to, he said, we want a state of institutions, a state of services. He talks about democracy. So their rhetoric has changed. They're talking about democracy. 
not about democracy. They hate democracy, but they talk about the state of services and institutions. They refer to democracy. They refer to the Arab dictators as a creation of Western democracy. So, so they oppose democracy. Uh, the way they speak, the way uh, their rhetoric has totally shifted post-Arab uh, Spring and post-Arab revolutions. Now they are not talking with the same, you know, they have the same words that came from the old rhetoric of Afghanistan, of the mountains of Afghanistan, but put in a new context as if all what's happening now in the Arab world is sort of their achievement. They've started the revolution. Now mm. the masses are... are so they, they are using this new rhetoric. And again, they are different because they are more dangerous on the context on the ground because in the old days, they were again back in the mountains. They had no contact with the locals on the ground. Now they have, you know, contact with the locals. Now, again, they rebrand themselves as as a state. Are the locals under their sway? Do they do they accept what they're trying to do? They're not trying to get into confrontation with the locals. They've allowed the locals to chew out, smoke, listen to music, and they say gradually we'll ban them from doing these things. So they are much smarter. Set the scene for us, Gaith. Uh, what does southern Yemen actually look like? In general, it's it's a huge, big country, predominantly desert, mountainous, you know, feuding tribes. And in the middle of that chaos, Al-Qaeda has found a footstep. And from there, they kind of emerge as a, as a major player now in the south of Yemen. And Gaith, just finally, I'm curious to know how the people in southern Yemen kind of reacted to you as this journalist working for a Western news organization. They have an, an insurgency going on. And because of that, they really welcome any journalists visiting them. They want to tell their stories to the state of the, the revolution. The jihadis is a different uh, story, of course. Like everywhere else, you need to go with you know, local contacts, people who, who are from the area. You need uh, a sort of someone to vouch for you to kind of guarantee your safety when you're driving through, through their lands. But again, the jihadis are more sophisticated jihadis than the jihadis of uh, Somalia, for example, or uh, Afghanistan. They have a press office. They have a, a media organization. In one of the towns that I visited, they have a sort of uh, a hut on the side of the road with two kids working on a computer, uh, copying sermons of Awlaqi, the preacher, wow. and sermons of Bin Laden and, and handing it to the, to the people. So they are trying to show themselves in a more sophisticated light than the jihadis in, in Iraq or in Afghanistan, for example. Gaith Abdullahad with The Guardian newspaper in London. Thanks so much. Thank you. Now to Pakistan, a country that also has a serious problem with extremist violence. Today, though, we want to focus on another side of life in Pakistan. There's a growing fashion industry there, and a good chunk of it is built around a fabric that Pakistanis call lawn. It's become all the rage for urban Pakistani women in recent years, as Fahad Desmukh reports from Karachi. This is the exhibition of fashion model turned designer Vaniza Ahmed. This is the first time that I've come out with three different collections. This year we've introduced the limited edition, which is just embroideries. and then we've There's a pretty amazing mix of customers here. Young and old, some dressed in sleeveless t-shirts and skinny jeans, others wearing the all-covering black niqab that leaves only the eyes visible. You wouldn't think that there'd be such a stampede for lawn. It's just cloth, and cotton cloth at that. But it's lightweight, relatively cheap, and particularly suited for Pakistan's hot and muggy summers. Sharmin Jan is a recent college grad who is at the exhibition to check out the designs. You can look bright in this summer season, 
and uh, feel good, comfortable, not that sweaty. You know, because even fitted jeans, you can feel really, really hot. Even though you go into, you know, AC cars or something, but still at time, there's a time when you get out of your car and then, you know, you feel really hot. So lawn is something which helps a lot. It suits the environment, uh, you know, geographically, the climate. The psychology behind the whole thing is that just as it happens in the West, everybody cannot afford designer outfits and couture outfits. That's fashion journalist Mohsin Saeed. He says the idea of fads here in Pakistan and in the West are just the same, just the products are different. Over there, they launch cosmetics lines and accessories. Over here, the same thing is translated into lawn. Now, a person who cannot afford a 100,000 couture outfit can easily afford 3,000 lawn outfit by a designer. Everybody wants to have a designer tag. That's the difference between $30 and $1,000. Adding to spring fever is the fact that designer lawn outfits are generally only available at these two or three day exhibitions and not in shops. It gives products an added layer of exclusivity. But more than just the thrill of grabbing cheap couture, the exhibitions have in some ways become a form of recreation in a city that's starved of spaces for women. Sharmin Jan explains. People used to go to shops and all and then buy it. Now you can get here in a good environment. You know, there's catwalk, a central acid environment, nicely put up. So, you know, it's, you, know you feel relaxed and it, you pass your time as well nicely for entertainment. Then you, you go next day, you wear it and you're like, I'm wearing this lawn. You know, that's the thing. The fashion industry here is on a roll. There are multiple fashion weeks held each year. There are over a dozen dedicated fashion magazines published in the country. And there is even a 24-hour dedicated fashion TV channel. Watch Fashion Pakistan Week. This Eve, only on Style 360. High fashion is becoming more available to all classes. Designer Vaniza Ahmed. Designer wear couture is for the elite. This way you're reaching out to the masses. That's why I did it, because I get to design for every woman in Pakistan, not just the elite who have money. So this is, yes, a way of getting to the, uh, the masses instead of just the elite. Riding on its success in the local market, many designers have now even started exporting their lawn fabrics to India, the Middle East and elsewhere in the region. For The World, I'm Fahad Desmuk in Karachi, Pakistan. See the latest lawn fashions from the runways in Pakistan. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. For today's GeoQuiz, we want you to locate Zug Island. Zug Island is no scenic getaway. It's a heavy industrial site that was developed on a 600-acre man-made island. On most days, smoke pours out of the high stacks of a steel mill there and drifts high above the Rouge River, or River Rouge as locals call it. Right now, Canadian residents on one side of the river are complaining about a loud humming noise they say is coming from the island. I was watching a, a basketball game and it was incredibly loud. The vibrations, you could feel them coming through the house and, uh, and through the windows. We went out to see what it was and it was just so intense. It's a real disturbance, and uh, there are a number of neighbors in my community who've been disturbed by this noise. The complaints have reached as high as the U.S. State Department, and some say it could blow up into an international incident. So where exactly along the U.S.-Canada border is Zug Island? Find out in just a matter of seconds.
Reporter Alistair McDonald writes about Zug Island in the Wall Street Journal today. He visited the community that's complaining about the noise. Alistair, before we find out the mystery, uh, where is Zug Island and how bad is the problem? Zug Island is just opposite Windsor. It's on the Detroit River and it's on the southern fringes of Detroit. And are these people exaggerating, uh, as people do when anything infringes on their backyard? Um, well, actually talking to them, there's been a lot of passionate outcry over it. I mean, they're very uptight about this. And people played me recordings of it. And I have to say, if um, I was getting that at night, I wouldn't be particularly happy. It sounded like a sort of a grating, um, throbbing sound, like the sort of like horrible background noise that might have been used in a, in a sort of a Depeche Mode single in the 1980s or something like that. And have that constantly, I would have thought, would be very frustrating. But the noise comes and goes, and it's 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 a nocturnal beast. The uh, winds at home; it mainly comes out at night, which of course is the last time when people actually want it to be there. You use some uh, very colorful words to describe the noise. Any way you could imitate the noise for us? <laughs> I'd rather not. <laughs> the most amusing description of it I heard was that it sounds like the uh, the bass vocals of Barry White, which I found very amusing. <laughs> the most the most common description is it's like having a very large truck idling outside and certainly one of the noises i heard did sound exactly like that um it's kind of funny alistair you quote some people from detroit on the other side of the river who say they don't hear the noise uh that's right they said the only thing they hear is the sound of canadian people complaining yeah that's right yeah (laughs) the uh u.s representative for that area hanson clark and americans i talked to on that side of the border none of them say that they've heard it and they haven't had any complaints from any of their constituents. I'd take that at face value. But as somebody um, pointed out, it might be just because people in that particular part of Detroit are pretty used to industrial noise and have been for a long time now. What are the theories about this hum? Originally, they had all sorts of theories that it was earthquakes, that it was uh, wind turbines, that it was an underground stream, that it was salt mines, which exist around there. But they think it's some sort of industrial process coming out of Zug Island. It's a very industrial area there. It's positively Dickensian. Huge blast furnace that tower over the river and huge great chimney stacks. It was quite something to see. Could this really turn into an international incident, as we alluded to earlier? I mean, tell me I'm wrong. You could argue it already has if you've, if you've had the Canadians complain to the State Department. I mean, that's, that's pretty serious. But the trouble is the, for the U.S. is that it's not only that, as we've just alluded to, they can't hear it. But it's a jurisdictional thing. Well, that's what they say. They say that, you know, it's not a federal thing. But they are taking these meetings. And they took another meeting, of course. Uh, It was only last Thursday. So they they say they're taking it seriously. And the fact that the State Department is having these meetings and answering questions from journalists such as me would suggest that they are trying to take it seriously. Is there some prospect for resolving this case? It's a a difficult one. Tricky one, isn't it? I mean, my own (laughs) theory is, and this is just me completely speculating, that in the end... Windsor or some Canadian authority will pay for the study that narrows it down to a particular piece of machinery, a particular plant, and then you can start pointing fingers. So my own view is if nobody in America is going to pay for it, and somebody said it could cost as little as 20000 then somebody on the Canadian side will pay for that, and it will get sorted out that way. One... Um, resident quoted in the story she said sometimes it's just so loud she thinks the windows are going to give way so that sort of puts it in perspective i mean this right. is a noise that you can't drown out with the tv that you can't drown out with music it becomes so loud at times according to residents the wall street journal's alistair mcdonald in toronto telling us about the nocturnal beastie windsor hum as he calls it you can't hear it all the way up there in toronto can you 
No. Okay. <laughs> Luckily, yeah. <laughs> Alistair, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Steve Martin once wrote a short story called Cruel Shoes about a pair of black and white pumps for two left feet. French designer Christian Louboutin isn't the literary type, but he has made a killing out of designing what appears to be cruel footwear. And strangely, the women who buy his shoes keep coming back for more. Louboutin is celebrating 20 years in the business, and today a sampling of some of his high heels went on display at the Design Museum in London. Louboutin's interest in high heels began as a teenager, hanging out in Paris music halls, where he'd admire the pretty confections on the dancer's feet. Now Christian Louboutin riffs on those designs with spikes, studs, points, or peekaboo toes. Louboutin told the BBC's Rebecca Jones that comfort isn't really part of the equation. You know, if you ask me if I care in the process of designing the shoes about comfort, I have to say no. The reason is that if a woman looks at my shoes, I would not like the idea that she thinks, oh my God, it really looks so comfy. This is not the type of shoe I'm doing. But suffer to be beautiful just doesn't work. You know, you have bad wrinkles, so I actually do care. But you cannot expect a five inches heel making you feel like if you were on flip-flops or on sneakers. So on that, no, these are not comfortable shoes. So this is where my shoes are standing. This little extra pain with this maximum of pleasure is worth it. Well, if it's not worth it, just don't wear them. But would you wear shoes that are painful? You know, for instance, men don't have heels in general. But for men, you have a lot of things which are not comfortable. I do wear ties, and it's not comfortable. How many times you have seen at a dinner party a man opening his shirt? It's the same thing, you know. Men are not necessarily dressed in pyjamas. There will be listeners who will think, why would anyone spend hundreds or thousands of pounds on a pair of shoes? I would give you an example. If you take a bottle of wine, a bottle of red wine, you take another bottle of red wine, one is going to cost you pound fifty. The other one is going to cost you £150. It's the same content. It's 75 centiliters. It's exactly the same shape of a bottle. Therefore, one is 100 times more expensive. There is a difference between a very good wine and a very bad wine, a very cheap wine. And it's the same thing for shoes. Now, apparently, Christian Louboutin will be opening his first men's boutique in Paris this summer. One person who I doubt will be shopping there is a subject of our global hit today. He's French musician Jan Tiersen. Tiersen told me he doesn't like Paris, although, as you'll hear in a moment, he is connected musically to the French capital. And when Tiersen stopped by our studio recently, he was wearing a pair of Celtic green Converse high tops. He didn't come to talk about his footwear, though. Here's the track Monuments from Tiersen's new album, Skyline. Jan, this is your sixth studio album uh, recorded at your home studio on the island of Oisson, which is off the coast of West Brittany in France. Uh, am I pronouncing it right? Oisson? Yeah, perfect. Now, tell me about this island, Oisson. It's, it's curious that you've got this new recording with, with a title that evokes the city 
right? Skyline is the yeah. title of the album, and yet you've recorded it in this very rural place. I start there. It's the place where I live, and I think it's really convenient, and uh, I really love this place. And um, there's just 700 people, also seven pubs, which is great. <laughs> 700 people, seven pubs. Yeah. Good ratio. Good ratio, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's listen to a bit of a tune called Another Shore, and then we'll get back to Jan Tiersen. Music from the new album Skyline by uh, French musician Jan Tiersen. Um, a lot of people describe your music as soundscape-y. Uh, h- how does that strike you? Is that is that fair? Are you a soundscape artist? For me, music is something really simple. It's just a matter of sounds put together. I mean, maybe part of that reputation comes from the fact that uh, y- your music features prominently in the very well-known French film Amélie. Tell me how you became part of that film in the first place, because you actually didn't compose a lot for that movie. It was music that you had already written, correct? Yeah, it's mainly uh, music from my first, second, and third album. It was just a phone call. From the director? Uh, Yeah, I'd like to use your music. Oh, okay, do it. It was a good thing. You know, the three first uh, albums were um, quite unknown, so it was really good to have the same music and to be known for a thing you already done. I'm not really a soundtrack guy. I don't I think music is something really abstract. It's not a language. I think it's really it's really strange. I think when you're listening to music you can imagine a landscape and have lots of visual in your mind. But it's the opposite when you make music I think it's completely stupid to have uh, something precise in your mind when you try to write music I don't believe in that So the new album Skyline, I, I just want to know how you kind of pull this off on stage because it's lush, it's filled with uh, kind of odd instrumentation, voices, choruses, all sorts of kind of electronic samples. You just played a couple of shows on this North American tour. Give our listeners a preview of how that sound comes together uh, on stage in case they find themselves anywhere near one of your concerts in the next month. We are six on stage. We all sing. We got lots of um, vintage uh, synth on board and um, I think it's quite fair to the album it's quite close so the tour is going on for a few more weeks uh, there is a French presidential election runoff uh, on May 6 how are you guys going to vote oh you know, we have this system in France which is uh, really easy you go to the police office and you give a procuration to someone you've got your person already yeah, identified yeah. who will vote for you yeah you sure they're going to vote the way you want them to vote? Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Jan Tiersen is currently on tour in North America. The new album's called Skyline. Great to meet you and to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you very much.
We have tour information and a video of Jan Tiersen speaking with me about how this surreal music video for this song, The Trial, came about. Check it out at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by contributors to the PRI Program Fund and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.